0: It's really a model for Pareto optimality. I suggested an idea that Jeff was excited about, <laughs> and then Jeff did all the work, and we all won. So, fantastic.
1: This is densely speaking conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. Today's show is the third and final part of our special series on urban economics and history, centered on a special issue of regional science and urban economics. The series features short interviews with many of the contributors to this issue on a wide range of topics at the intersection of urban economics and history. Please be sure to check out parts one and two which are already available wherever podcasts are distributed. Today's show features interviews with Ed Glazer, Leah Brooks, Ting Chen, David Naji, Janos Silberberg, and Jason Barr. Joining me today is Greg Schill. Hi, Greg.
0: Hey, Jeff. How are you? <laughs> yeah, doing well, thanks. Really been enjoying this series. And I take my hat off to you for leading the charge on the interviews.
1: Yeah, I will acknowledge that this was your idea
0: <laughs> to do this special
1: series, but I was more than happy to do all these interviews with some of the leading uh, researchers in this field. What are some of your other thoughts on the series?
0: I really enjoyed these. I think Ed Glazer is probably the urban economist that the highest number of our listeners is familiar with, You know, author of some famous books, Triumph of the City, Survival of the City more recently, and a bunch of other work. It was fun just to sit down with him and to have Leah Brooks back as well. She was one of our, I think she might've been our first interview about infrastructure costs. And we had her on to talk about her paper on the ghost of transit past. What happens if you build transit and they don't come? So I really enjoyed those and all the other papers and interviews as well. I like to focus on tall buildings specifically in the Allfeld and Barr paper. I think it's cool to focus on buildings. You know, we've talked about cities or neighborhoods or regions, but, you know, that picks up on a theme I've seen, like uh, Orin Ziv has that paper on, when the building is big enough, there's opportunity to talk about buildings themselves and the little micro economies that they create.
1: Yeah. It makes me think of this one very kind of historical perspective on cities, which is that, what are cities? Well, one way of thinking about cities is that they're just full of old stuff, right? Old buildings. And so I think that, that the off bar piece kind of makes that view and that connection explicit.
0: Well, I would love to use this opportunity before we kick it over to the interviews to ask you a little bit about your role. So you're an editor of the Regional Science and Urban Economics Journal. I guess as an outsider to the field, you know, I'm a law professor, I'd love to hear how you become an editor, what it's like to be an editor, what are, how does the journal function, just sort of nuts and bolts.
1: Yeah, it's a great honor to be a co-editor at RSUE. RSUE has a pretty illustrious history in the field of urban economics. It's published some classic papers in the past. I started about four and a half years ago, so I'm in my second three-year term right now as co-editor. I'm one of many co-editors at the Journal. And how did I get to be a co-editor? I don't know the exact answer to that question. You're going to have to ask Gabriel... Alfelt and Laura Gobion, who are the co-editors-in-chief who approached me about this job, I could speculate a little bit. I'm going to highlight like maybe two factors. So one, doing good research on topics that are kind of core in the field and topics that people are interested in. I think I've done a pretty successful job at that. So that's something that is one important factor. A second factor is doing referee reports well. And so, you know, that's the big part of our job as researchers is doing referee reports. And I've had a lot of experience doing that over the years. And I think that that's something else that people in the field notice. So, you know, doing good research on topics that people care about and writing uh, referee reports that are timely and informative. That'll be my guess as to, to why I have this job.
0: Okay. And how about being an editor of the journal? Like there are a lot of journals out there Like, from an author perspective, what are some of the attributes that they should keep in mind for the journal?
1: So this is a good opportunity to advertise for people to submit their papers to the journal. Plug away. (laughs) I try to run a very efficient process for paper submissions. You know, I think our average time to first decision is something on the order of like two months. So an econ journal land, that's pretty fast. You know, I would love to see more historically oriented research. So, you know, the more that gets submitted, the more that I see and get get a chance to publish in the journal.
0: Yeah, I've really enjoyed this whole series on historically oriented urban econ research, but also some of your work on portage sites and on freeways and so on. Speaking of papers, we did a special on Diego Puga's 10 favorite Urban Econ Papers from 2021. What's a recent favorite paper of yours?
1: That's a great question. We actually had queued some of those ideas up for our conversation with Diego, but it turns out like an hour is like not quite enough time to even talk about 10 papers. So we didn't get a chance to even do that. Let me highlight one paper that I handled at RSC last year, which was by Jim Sciola. And so this was a paper that continued his research on the Effects of the 1906 San Francisco Earthquake and the Subsequent Fire. The paper in RCUE called Firms, Fires, and Fire Breaks, the Impact of the 1906 San Francisco Disaster on Business Agglomeration." That was in 2021. The paper is about how the earthquake affected business location within San Francisco, so at a neighborhood scale. And there's a ton of interesting stuff in this paper. It's a follow-up to the famous paper that was in the AER, by Don Davis and David Weinstein, looking at the effect of the bombings of Japan during World War II. They also did a follow-up that was on industry uh, agglomeration patterns that came out in 2008 in the Journal of Regional Science. In this paper, Jim's talking about agglomeration of industries within cities at the level of a city block or a neighborhood. And what is the main result? Well, there's this substantial change in where industries are located after the san francisco earthquake and fire so if you look to spatially they move to a different neighborhood but if you look at the relationship between plants or between businesses in the same industry they're kind of in the same sort of spatial relationship to each other so they're still on average a block apart or two blocks apart but it's just the identity of those blocks has shifted and so that suggests two things. One is that these forces, these economic forces that firms are responding to when they're deciding on how to agglomerate, that these are still important. I still want to be next to my customers, or I still want to be next to my suppliers, right? Condition on that, I don't care like where that is, right? I could be in the Tenderloin, or I could be in you know, High Dashberry or whatever, right? It doesn't really matter. And so this is a really nice paper that Jim puts together, a lot of nice evidence on that fact.
0: That sounds very cool. And also a neat illustration of a lot of the themes that we've been talking about in this special of intersection of you know, firms and location and transportation infrastructure. Of course, 1906, you know, rapid transit would still have been the dominant form of transportation in San Francisco and shaping the, the spatial distribution of firms. That is super interesting. Before we turn it over to our interviews for the special. I want to take this opportunity to thank Skylar Powles, our producer for the past few years from the beginning of Densely Speaking. It's impossible to imagine Densely Speaking without you, Skylar. And, you know, Skylar did not have a background in audio editing, but trained up and has helped us produce podcasts that we find really satisfying and that I think people enjoy, and it really wouldn't have been possible without your help, Skylar. So thanks so much. Congratulations on your graduation, and we'll be looking to you for great things.
1: You're here. Yeah, I think it's hard to overstate what an incredible job Skylar has done and how easy he makes it for us to record this podcast. I'm really grateful for our His contributions to the show and to our lives, and I wish him the best. The rest of this episode features interviews, starting with Ed Glazer. Enjoy. Our next guest is Ed Glazer. Ed Glazer is Fred and Eleanor Glimp, Professor of Economics and the Chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. His latest book with David Cutler is Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you on. Your essay for the special issue is called, What Can Developing Cities Today Learn from the Urban Past? And specifically, I think you mean the urban past as referring to the historical experiences of cities in today's advanced economies. Before we dive into the lessons, I wonder if you could speak a little bit on learning from history and how are developing country cities today similar to historical experiences of cities in the West and how are they different?
2: It's a great question, and I believe it's incredibly important for us to do our best to learn from history, but also to recognize the limitations of that and the fact that there are many things that are quite different. The technologies are totally different. The ability to feed developing world cities is just much easier than the ability to feed the cities of the wealthy world in in the past. So some things are eternal, right? The issues with dealing with waste, that hasn't gone away. That was a big part of our past. The issue of getting clean water in. That hasn't gone away. That's a big part of our past as well. The human proclivity to engage in crime and violence towards one another, that hasn't gone away. That's still there. But the technologies are totally different. And you know, among the most important of those are, is food, but you know, transportation as well, right? I mean, 19th century American cities didn't have to deal with internal combustion engines everywhere. And so that made things much easier along some dimensions and harder along others. So it's a selective process of learning from the past. It's interesting, I was just reflecting on your comment, what I meant is learning from the past of the wealthy world. That's really true. I think one of the reasons for that is that the urban past of the wealthy world is very well documented. The urban past of the poor world is either non-existent or not documented. We just don't have that history to draw on as much as we would like to.
1: Yeah, so that's a good point, right? Like the technologies are vastly different, and that's going to affect how we can draw from history. So let's talk about the five broad lessons that you draw in your article. I suppose we'll just go in order, right? So the first one is that political power has shaped cities for a long time. What are the implications of that idea for developing country cities today? You know, if you
2: look back through history prior to 1900, prior to 1850, every one of the megacities in history had been an imperial capital from you know classical Rome to you know, Tokugawa Edo to Baghdad under the Abbasids, and cities in medieval Europe, even though they weren't megacities, were typically associated with some form of political power, be it one of the petty princelings of the Holy Roman Empire's local seat or a large national capital like London or Paris. One of the things that, that, that's implied by this, of course, is that cities can be, in a sense, too big. If they're growing just for political reasons so i am not one of those who believes that there's an optimal city size or that we can tell that a city is obviously too large but we do tend to think that if cities are artificially boosted by something that's unrelated to the real economy that that's something to worry about and certainly the primate cities that are large solely because they're the seat of power and the autocrats resources just flow to everyone who's nearby that seems like an unhealthy thing. And so worrying about ways to limit the t- tendency of politics to draw people to the center, that seems like an important policy lesson from that. What the right way to go about that is more difficult. You can imagine that you just move towards democracy where people in different parts of the country are more empowered. You can imagine that you just put more limitations on what the sovereign is able to do in the locality. So I'm not saying that there's an obvious single thing, but we do want to worry about cities being too large because of their politics.
1: Your second broad lesson, I think, relates to your initial comment about how technology has changed and that kind of affects how we think about the lessons of history. So your second broad lesson is that transportation is important for shaping cities, but its importance has declined over time.
2: That is a really important lesson. In general, the overall power of transportation, if you look back in history, it's incredibly powerful, right? And we think about something like the Erie Canal. Right, which is this incredible connection between the Hudson River and the Great Lake System. Once you have the Illinois and Michigan Canal, it creates a great watery arc that goes all the way from New York to New Orleans. And it is the making of cities along its path. Not so much New York City, which is growing as quickly before the Erie Canal as it is afterwards, but Buffalo is unimaginable without the Erie Canal. And then, of course, there are all of the sort of Midwestern cities which are on major waterways. Chicago, whose great real estate boom of the 1830s, occurs because of the talk of the Illinois and Michigan Canal and and the idea that it'll be the linchpin of this arc. And also, it's true that the Erie Canal, so one lesson from that is that transportation can sort of make cities. And the second is that transportation can do amazing things. Now, flash forward 200 years, we are just starting from a much better base in terms of the quality of connection. And so the ability of incremental transportation to either make a place or to have huge benefits in welfare is much more limited. And it's just harder to imagine that you're going to have sort of a transformative transportation project in the same way that you could when it was just incredibly hard to move anything over space in the US in the 19th century. I mean, it cost as much to ship goods 30 miles over land as it did to ship them across the entire Atlantic Ocean in 1816. And so the scope for improvement was enormous. Now, think about this in the developing world context. It means that even there, transportation is incredibly important. It will shape where cities go. It will shape how people move within those cities. And it's something that's worth investing in. But it's not going to be as transformative as it was in the past. And we should not accept every transportation project as being as transformative as its
1: boosters suggest that it will be. I was really interested in lesson number three. Infrastructure works best when combined with incentives. Tell me about what we learned from the experience of the Croton Aqueduct in New York City.
2: So that's one of my favorite stories, in part because it is a family component. So the Croton Aqueduct itself is this amazing project that involves an incredible amount of money that's being spent. It involves an incredible urban alliance to try and make it. It involves this sort of character. I tell this very much about this character in my book, Survival of the City, Mayor Stephen Allen of New York, who then goes on to sort of lead an urban alliance to create this thing. And it sort of suggests that you really need institutions and institution builders to actually create the infrastructure. But once it gets built, and it was built partially in response to the pandemics, which hit New York in the early 19th century, and the pandemics, no one really understood what made them. But there was this medical mistake that was widely made, the so-called miasma theory of illness, which suggested that all these illnesses were spread by sort of foul airs, which came from the sort of marshy area in New York. And so the suggestion was to drain the swamp. Now, they got the sort of medicine wrong, but they got the public health exactly right. Except for the fact that when they built the aqueduct, the cholera epidemics didn't stop. They kept on going for 25 years. And this requires sort of a second urban innovator, Dr. Stephen Smith of Bellevue, who first organized this sort of alliance of doctors. They went, they documented conditions in the poor parts of New York. And they realized that, like, poor New Yorkers were not connected to the water system. Poor New Yorkers found it too expensive, just like the cities in the developing world today, where you have, you know, poor residents in cities like Osaka who are not connected. And they found it easier to just go with their wells and their pit latrines, and they didn't really understand the connection to cholera, and they continued to die. And it's not until Stephen Smith becomes the first leader of the Metropolitan Board of Health and then starts imposing fines on tenement owners. That's incentives to get them to connect that New York starts getting healthier. And this is exactly the lesson in the developing world right, is that some wealthy first world donor will go and build a water main and say, now it's your problem to get the connection. And poor people, the connection costs a thousand bucks per capita income is less than $2,000. And the residents of these communities say, no, thank you. We've either got to subsidize these things, which of course, if we massively subsidize water in cities, we're going to end up having cities that are in some sense too large because we've artificially subsidized urban life, or we've got to find people who don't connect as New Yorkers did. The reason why I said it has a family component is that my great-great-great-great-grandfather died in the 1848 cholera outbreak in New York, six years after the Croton Aqueduct opened. So one of the thousands of New Yorkers who died of the disease during the years in which we had the Croton Aqueduct, we're not forcing people to connect.
1: That's an incredibly instructive story. Let me skip ahead to lesson number five, because I think it's related. So the Croton Aqueduct was a particularly structured institutionally. And your fifth lesson is that the kind of institution that we set up to manage infrastructure the optimal institutional structure is not clear right it depends on local conditions it depends on local institutions and local capacity can you expand on that a little bit
2: oh big time so i sort of have a typology in the back of my head of you know four types of institutions that can handle urban infrastructure or most public activities right one of which is we have an executive who's responsible to the voters or maybe responsible to the governor, right? That executive is can be fired fairly regularly. And if it's a mayor, that's really direct. So we'll call that direct public. Then there's this model, which was much beloved by 19th century Americans, which is sort of an independent entity. It, it still probably will be appointed by a governor, but it has a fair amount of independence to it. It's seen as being something that's a part. In your own world, I would say, for example, that the Federal Reserve System is an example of this, sure. right? that it's or, an independent public entity. Sure. So, or the, the uh, Port Authority
1: of Robert Moses.
2: The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, right. Then there's a third thing, which is a public-private partnership. So there's a private company which provides the service, maybe with some public subsidy and maybe not. And then the fourth is it can be done by a nonprofit. So, for example, a classic example of this is so-called turnpike trusts in 18th century England that would operate roads. So you have these four typologies, all of which have pluses, all of which have negatives. So you should be better at me explaining the downsides of having a purely public entity running, for example, the money supply right? We might think that local elected officials want to gun it to help their own elections in various ways. And 19th century New Yorkers had the same fear of Tammany Hall running various forms of public infrastructure, that they would be using that for their own political advantages. So they wanted something like the Croton Aqueduct Commission. They wanted something like the Erie Canal Commission that would be separate. And that creates at least the advantage of having someone who's apart from the politics who can take a longer view, but you really need someone of stature to be willing to run that. Otherwise, it can become just a tool where the mayor can do even worse things and say, oh, it's not my fault, it's independent. And that's often what happens with parastatals in the developing world, where you actually would, would be better off having the elected official run it rather than being able to pass the buck and say, oh, it's not my doing it. Public-private partnerships, I think there's a lot to like about the hart schleifer analysis of like what nonprofits do well and do poorly. So they're almost assuredly worse at cutting costs. The classic Hart-Schleifer-Vishny analysis says they can be trusted not to cut quality. That's probably right. But there's another thing in urban history, which is actually more important than that, which is they're less likely to bribe the government. So I've talked to Oliver about this. and He's liked to interpret that as a different variant of his own idea. I'm not sure that I see it as a variant, but it is sort of historically the big problem with public-private partnerships is they would just subvert the government. Right. They would just bribe the government in various ways. And the problem with nonprofits is it's just very hard to get them to do any large scale infrastructure. So you've got all of these different entities, all of which have strengths and weaknesses. And you've got to ask yourself what's going on in local conditions. So is your government strong enough to resist the bribery from a private company? Well, if it is, then your PVPs are possible. If you know that your guys are going to be completely subverted, then don't think that privatization is going to be some kind of advantage. It's just going to mean wholesale robbery. Do you have a person of stature who you can put in charge? of a independent public entity, or who has basically an international reputation that they don't want to lose. If so, then maybe it's right to trust the international, the independent public entity. If not, then, you know, just make the mayor run it and don't think that you can do better than that.
1: The last lesson is that property rights uh, for landowners were a key factor in the development of Western cities, especially in the English speaking world. Is that about a limit to what we can learn from history?
2: Do you mean, are those five lessons at the end of what we <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, Well, <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or, or, so. or do differences in property rights regimes sort of make the lessons from American or UK cities? Or does that circumscribe what we can apply to developing country cities today?
2: Not everywhere. I didn't mean it to be as far reaching as that. I meant it more that the our urban development involved people buying up lots mm-hmm. and developing them and typically renting them. Yeah. Right, So 95% of units in New York in 1895 were rented, not owned. Yeah. And that, of course, solves the investment problem, right? Because you, you don't have a lot of poor people coming into the city who have large amounts of dollops of money, but they can provide rent on a regular basis. And it's just much harder to imagine how you're going to deliver higher quality units. If you don't have that sort of model, that that's a sort of very attractive model, but not one that's easy to do. If you have various abridgements on property rights, and those abridgements on property rights can mean, oh, you're not going to allow a functioning rental market. You're not going to allow people to evict renters who don't pay. Oh, we're not going to make it possible for you to assemble land. You know, so all of those things will make it harder. There are other models. We see countries following those models, but that was a sort of a really reasonable path with delivering structures. And in most of the developing world, we need to deliver structures in some
1: other way. Right something that surprised me a little bit. I mean it's not that surprising, but I think the theme of this essay, right, is that political economy and political factors are hugely important and that seems to be like the bulk of what's transferable from history to the present at least in this essay.
2: That's true. You know, maybe it's because so much of history that's written is political history. Yeah. And that that that's I mean, we also, in our book, we tell the story of the 19th century cities as being the sort of hinge of history in which governments go from being basically totally malign, right? I yeah. mean, if you think about pre-1800 in the West, at least, I mean, the only thing governments do is kill people. I mean, they may right. be killing people I mean, to stop other people from killing you, but, you know, it's still killing people. And right. then all of a sudden, over the course of the 19th century, governments start actually saving people's lives. And that's an amazing thing that happens. The non-political stuff, it's interesting, and it's political organizational as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the sort of Croton Aqueduct is political, but it's also about the sort of organizations and nature of public capacity. I mean, it's a good question. Why don't we have more that sort of non-political, that's purely, let's say, business history? Right. Uh, so in my Ely lecture, I wrote a little bit about like land speculation in the early 19th century. I mean, yeah, there's a lesson from that, which is guys, Americans speculate on property and they always have. I mean, that's a, and they frequently have gotten it wrong. But I don't know beyond that what lesson there is.
0: The point you make about city size and role of the location of the capital, and we don't want capital cities to get too big and so on. That makes complete sense to me. I wondered how that interacts with our history in the US of state capitals that are highly heterogeneous in their locations within states. And At least some evidence suggests that the ones that are far afield, like Springfield or Albany or whatever, they're at least associated with higher levels of corruption, lower levels of efficiency than ones that are in Boston and Denver. The work
2: of Felipe Campante is well known to me. That's right. So I think there's a bit of a trade off. I mean, Campante makes this really clear statistically. On the other hand, it's clear that in terms of choosing their location, the people in those areas wanted to choose a capital that was not an existing population base because they thought that then the residents of Chicago would benefit for example, mm-hmm. from having the capital. And they wanted to limit the rents going to Chicago. And they thought by locating things somewhere else, that would diminish that. The other political part of American history that seems to me to be closely related to this is the fact that we give all of these low-density states to senators, right? mm-hmm. which also sort of limits the ability of, of the rents to go to you know, Washington, D.C. and the environs. So I think there are trade-offs, certainly. It's not like you would have trade-offs where you, you put the capital in the largest city, but you just have strong limits on what you can do in that capital or you use your legislatures to overrepresent the outer areas in different ways. One of the things that came out of the past two years is that this has not been a great two years for Washington, DC, which is kind of amazing, given that we spent $4 trillion trying to like stop a recession from happening. Usually when we spend that kind of money, Washington booms. But Mm -hmm. I think it's because so much of our counter recessionary stuff was really like government light. It was really involved massive amounts of spending without a lot of federal oversight. I mean, we just handed out trillions of dollars to bankers and said, go lend it to small businesses. Is a sort of a very different thing than like the New Deal.
1: Ed Glazer, thanks so much for joining us and talking about your essay. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. This was great fun. Our next guest is Leah Brooks, who's an associate professor at George Washington University. Leah Brooks has a paper in the special issue, co authored with Genevieve Deneuve. The paper's titled, What If You Build It and They Don't Come? How the Ghost of Transit Past Haunts Transit Present. I catch at least two allusions, literary allusions to that title. Leah Rooks, welcome back to the show.
3: Jeff and Greg, thank you guys for having me. I also want to advertise my paper as having also referring to Faulkner, Kevin Costner, and the famous silent film star, Harold Lloyd.
1: Absolutely incredible. I love it. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that you probably only sneak in in an invited uh,
3: article, right? That's correct, Jeff. And I was yeah. excited about it.
1: I actually like to hide Easter eggs in my papers. In my job market paper, there's like a particularly bad pun. People can go look for that. So your paper, <laughs> back to the business's hand, your paper is about transit systems in two cities, Bogota and Jakarta. Tell me what we learn about from comparing these two cities and their transit systems.
3: All right. So I start this paper sort of a conundrum because I was asked to discuss two papers at a World Bank conference. And the two papers were about bus rapid transit, which is basically a bus that works like a train in the sense that it has a dedicated track and prepayment of fares, So it's fast like a train, but it's cheap like a bus. And the two papers, one of them was about Bogota, which had, I think, by all reviews, a very successful bus rapid transit system. Lots and lots of people take it. It was pretty cheap. It's the backbone of their transit system. And Jakarta, which spent oodles of money building out a huge system that not many people take. So in the paper, I try to understand why Bogota has success and Jakarta does not.
1: So just to be clear, I think it's fair to mention these papers, right? So the paper on Bogota's BRT is by Nick Sivanidis, evaluating the impact of urban transit infrastructure evidence from Bogota's TransMilenio, Transmillennial. And then the paper on Jakarta is Arya Gada, Tadeha, Grachner, and Alexander Rothenberg, Life in the Slow Lane, Unintended Consequences of Public Transit in Jakarta. What do you conclude about the factors that are important for understanding these differences in success, Bogota and
3: Jakarta. All right, Jeff, it all goes back to William Faulkner, who said <laughs> the past is never dead. It's not even past. And, you know, he says that about the American South, but I think it's true for transit in cities too. Yeah. So I say that the answer lies in the past. So you have to think back a long time ago to the city where people only walked. That's the walking city. People walk everywhere. So cities have to be pretty small. Then there's this great innovation in transit, let's fast forward to the streetcar, which opens the boundaries of the city. So The streetcar takes you quickly and cheaply around the city, and it makes a building boom in places that were before just too far out to get to the center. And this building boom takes a particular form. It builds neighborhoods of dense structures that are right by the streetcar stop, commercial and multifamily residential, and then single family residential, but still pretty densely near the streetcar stop. So that's this pattern of land use that gets laid out in the early part of the 20th century. And then this is where the Betamax videocassette comes in. Like the Betamax videocassette, the streetcar becomes quickly obsolete. But the thing is, the land use is already there. So we don't change the layout of the roads and we don't change the initial building patterns, but the streetcar is gone. And then this land use pattern that the streetcar determined persists in part due to land use regulation. So what does all that mean for Bogota and Jakarta, you might ask? So here's how I link that historical pattern to what happens in Bogota and Jakarta. So think of Bogota as being a pretty wealthy city in the early 1900s with a big streetcar network and attendant density. And like lots of places, Bogota gets rid of its streetcar network about mid-century in Bogota with this 1948 enormous violent eruption called the Bogota. So And Jakarta was much less wealthy in the early part of the 20th century. It had a smaller population and it was less dense. It had, to the best of my knowledge, one transit line and not much density along that transit line. So if you think about where Bogota and Jakarta started and their ability to have successful transit, they started in very different places because Bogota had land use that was receptive to having good transit, dense land use that supports transit, and Jakarta did not.
1: Yeah. There's kind of two key ideas here, right? One is that successful transit depends on land use patterns. And land use patterns today are tied to land use patterns in the past. That's a subject that you've written about quite a bit. I guess what we should have in mind are like redevelopment frictions or land assembly costs. Or should we be thinking about? persistence in zoning or land use regulations or all of the above
3: i say all of the above jeff i don't think it's an either okay. or question
1: okay that's fair very good what do you want to tell us about the pictures in your article because they're striking ones
3: oh you like the? i got a map of bogota a map yeah. of jakarta i wanted to put in a picture of harold lloyd the silent film star Because there's this great scene in the 19-teens or early 20s. He's trying to get on the streetcar in Los Angeles. And my paper about density is from Los Angeles. He's trying to get on the streetcar, but he can't because it's packed. And so he's like, oh, the streetcar sucks. And so he tries to jump off the streetcar into a car. Because the car is faster, right? The streetcar is slow and it's crowded. And there's a reason people stopped wanting to take the streetcar. Because they could get in their car and get where they were going. So he tries to jump off the streetcar into the car. That's not successful either. He has a lot of problems. And why didn't that make it
1: into the article?
3: I couldn't find a good picture. Ah, what a shame.
1: I know. (laughs) Leah Brooks, an incredible pleasure as always. Thank you for joining us.
3: Guys, it's always fun chatting with you.
1: Ting Chen is a professor at Hong Kong Baptist University. The essay... Co-authored with James Kong is called Warshocks, Migration and Historical Spatial Development in China. Welcome to the show, Ting.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is a really interesting article. Let me kind of get some context. So Chinese civilization has its roots in North China, but today most of the major population centers lie in the south. So, what is the explanation for this? Geographic shift in population?
4: Our paper is trying to answer that, but I don't think the answer is brought by ourselves first. I think historians already raised this hypothesis that because, you know, the Han center stays in the China proper, over time, they constantly have this periodic threat or invasion from the nomads. My co authors and former supervisor, James Kung, he has another paper in that uh, explaining that this kind of invasion, the nomadic invasion, is corresponding to the weather shock. And once they have weather shock and the shortage of food, they will come. And some of these nomads' uh, armies, if they are if more advanced in terms of their social organization, they're no longer being a tribe, they will aim something more than property. They will aim to kind of ruin the land of North China. This war also is a wave of mass migration. You face the war, and then the, the common peoples they will kind of flee to the south side of China. And altogether, there is a three ways of mass migration. We call it in history. And we think that's gradually shift this economic center to the south in history. Let's talk
1: a little bit about what you're able to document and the data in particular, which seems pretty remarkable. So you have a database population in these small geographic units, these grid cells, for over 2,000 years. Can you tell me a little bit yeah. about the construction of this database and then what you guys are able to document from these data?
4: Sure. Um, one good thing about China is that we have centralized, unified state at the very early periods of history. Like uh, we have our first unified dynasties, that's Qin Dynasty, but they only last less than 20 years, around 200 BC. And then we have another dynasty called Han Dynasty, and Han Dynasty is really the first dynasty who have the centralized state power, uh, state capacities in terms of they can do this mass scale uh, population sensor, kind of like population sensor, but... It's controversial. Also, there is some historian saying that what well, their sensor is really not the head count, but the number of households. I mean, there is arguments of that, but that's okay. But we make use of this data. I mean, the first way of this type of censor happens in 2 AD, in the middle of Han Dynasty. And then over time, we have periods in history that are separated. We have periods of histories that are unified. And once there is a unified state, so every of the empire, the founding empire will have these demands of censoring how many headcounts, how many peoples are under their commands, because that means how many peoples that will pay tax to them. Almost always at the beginnings of the dynasty, they will conduct this type of a censor survey. We make use of this archive. I mean, as I said at the beginnings, because those hypotheses, the freeways of migration and the nomadic invasion, that's a hypothesis raised by a historian. But they don't need this systematic collection or uh, data. Now we can digitize the archive and then geocoded them to make the grids type of datas you mentioned.:
1: It's really an incredible database. Let's go back to the history here. So there's three waves of migration instigated by these nomadic threats. What happens after these migration shocks? Do people go back to the places where they originated from or do they stay in their destinations?
4: You a very really interesting question. As I said, most of these max ways of migration, it comes of triggers by those nomads who have the power, who have already transformed themselves from tribes to a nation. And then they have the interest in changing their lifestyle of living from nomads to, like, based on the farmings. So they have the powers to root the lands of Han Chinese. And after that, normally we will have a short period. Like the first wave of migration happens after the so-called Wei Han dynasty. And then at the time, kind of China split into two parts. In the northern part, we have these different dynasties ruled by Roman. And in the south, it's ruled by the Han centers regime. So eventually, if the south sides go larger, they will have powers to reclaim their motherlands from the nomads. That's the first way. Then the last way happened in the Song Dynasty, because that's kind of initiated by the Yuan dynasty or Yuan empires. And they are too powerful militaries, this speaking. So they kind of graduates also took the lands from the south side and then ruled the whole China. Sometimes the Hans can reclaim their lands, sometimes they can't. At the last wave they can't.
1: So what's interesting is that these periods of the nomadic threats are temporary, but the population shifts that they induce, you know, seem persistent. So what is the explanation that you offer for this persistence in your
4: article? You raised a very interesting question. I don't think our short articles answer that in a deep way, but I think I can raise two connected points to that. First is that this mass migration, what is different from the normal or induced refugee wave that we see is that those elites also move to the South with the common peoples, like the elites included the bureaucrats, the artists, the scientists, the scholars, and also the loyal families also move to the South. And once you have this Igli or people with human capital that move to the South, they will introduce new ways of agricultural productions, like in the Song Dynasty after the people's move to the South. We really see this wave of adopting a new species of rice. Interestingly, they also change China's people's food consumption. In history, China used to eat a lot of wheat. And millets, but nowadays Chinese are really used to eating rice. But that happens only after Song Dynasty when these elites move to the south and they start farming and developing the land in the south, which are really suitable for rice. And I think when the elites comes and when they advance in adopting this technology, it really changed the environments of living in the south, making south become more accommodable for peoples. That is why gradually it really shifts the balance because now living in the south it seems to be safer and also more productive you can have a more productive uh, agricultures and i think that's uh, one important and this is a gradual changes another thing is that i mean when the nomads ruling the north some of them are very friendly to the han culture and some of them they don't they still maintain their ways of living and that can raise some conflict between the elites and also the the nomad rulers. And if the elites feels that their ways of ruling really threatens the culture, they will also choose move to the to south. So that's why the three ways of migration. What I mentioned that is what induced but normally it took a very long time to finish this migration over hundreds of years because they are gradually finding in the south is more productive land. Uh, living in the North is more and more unbearable than they will move to the South.
1: They both seem like reasonable hypotheses. I guess, as you say, right, like it would be interesting to see future work really flesh out these explanations.
4: So far in our paper, it remains to be a hypothesis. We haven't collected the data on like this technology adoption and development, but we have the impression from the historian's account that it matters to the developments of the South. But I think that would be a very interesting topic for the future research, if anyone interested.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Ting, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you coming to discuss your research.
4: Yeah, thank you for inviting me and your very enlightening question.
1: Up next is David Naji to talk about his article Quantitative economic geography meets history, questions, answers, and challenges.
5: What
6: was the economic impact of city bombing in the Second World War? How did trade give birth to cities in the Bronze Age? How much prosperity was brought about by the first railroads in the 19th century? As these questions are about the economic effects of large-scale historical events, it's clear that their study belongs to the field of economics. But very often, these historical events are also geographic by nature. Bombing might affect certain parts of a city, but leave other parts intact. Railroads connect certain cities, but not others. So within economics, these questions are often studied by people who specialize in economic geography. In my article, Quantitative Economic Geography Meets History, Questions, Answers and Challenges, I, David Nodj, junior researcher at Cray, review the part of the economic geography literature that has examined the economic impact of historical events using a methodology that combines data with economic models. One might wonder why looking at the data alone is not sufficient to answer these questions. The main issue with the data-only approach is as follows. While in the data we can make comparisons to learn about certain economic effects, we typically miss the overall impact of an event on the entire economy. Consider the example of the railroad. Looking at the data, we may find that cities on the railroad are, say, 10% richer than cities that are not on the railroad. This could, of course, mean that in an economy without the railroad, the cities currently on the railroad would be 10% poorer, while the cities not on the railroad would be exactly as well off as today. But in reality, the railroad might have led to a reallocation of economic activity across cities. In response to railroad construction, economic activity might have moved from non-railroad cities to railroad cities. So it could also be the case that without the railroad, cities currently on the railroad would be 5% poorer, while cities not on the railroad would be 5% richer. This again gives us the 10% difference found in the data but a very different overall impact of the railroad on the entire economy. To learn about this economy-wide impact, we need to augment the data with an economic model. In my article, I identify and discuss three key challenges that the economic geography literature studying historical events with a combined data and model approach has been facing. The first challenge I discuss is model tractability. We would obviously like to make our economic models as rich as possible to approximate reality. But richness comes at the cost that the model becomes too hard to handle. It's not just that we cannot characterize or solve the model with pencil and paper. It's that if we make the model too rich, we cannot handle it even on the computer. In the article, I discuss which elements of reality can be incorporated in our models without... Hurting tractability too much. Examples are trade, the mobility of labor across space, or commuting. Other model ingredients, such as endogenous infrastructure development, are much harder to bring on board. When incorporating these is essential for the particular historical event we seek to study, then we need to simplify the model on other fronts to keep it tractable. Another key challenge facing the literature is data availability. Of course, data becomes sparser and sparser as we go back in time. We often start with very little historical data, and fill the gaps with a combination of modern economic data, geographic data, and our economic models. This process often requires creativity. For example, population can be a good proxy of income in pre-industrial economies because richer areas had far higher fertility and therefore ultimately larger population. So many researchers use population data to proxy income in these settings. The final challenge I discuss is identification. Even if you find that a given historical event is associated with certain changes in economic activity, correlation doesn't imply causation. It could be that the event was an outcome rather than a cause of these changes. To address this challenge, the literature needs to resort to events or determinants of events that are as good as random. For instance, country borders sometimes changed out of political or military considerations without much attention to their economic impacts. This is ideal, because then we can be sure that the economic effect we measure was a consequence rather than a cause of the event. These are the three key challenges facing the economic geography literature that studies historical events with a combination of models and data. With the availability of new model techniques and tools to process historical data, this literature increased a lot in the last few years. But there are still very interesting questions out there that haven't been answered. I'm very curious to see how far we can push these new methods to answer some of those questions as well.
1: Our next guest is Janos Silberberg, Associate Professor at the University of Bristol. Welcome, Janos. Thank you. So your article in this special issue is called Urban Economics and a Historical Perspective, Recovering Data with Machine Learning. It's co-authored with Pierre-Philippe Combe and Laurent Gauvion. Give me a high-level overview about your work in this area. How did you come to be interested in recovering data with machine learning?
5: Yeah, so originally, I think the reason why... I became interested was in the context of a project with Stefan Heblisch and Alex True, in which we were thinking about pollution in cities during Victorian times and how this pollution would shape cities in the longer run. And then we discovered that we had one issue, which is that we needed pollution in the past and we didn't exactly know how to reconstruct pollution in the past. So we started to get interested in pollution sources. And it led us to thinking about how to recover pollution sources in the past. And we discovered that actually they could be recovered from historical maps. So this is how we got into this business, let's say, of unusual historical data. And I suspect that the other co-authors on the project, Laurent and uh, Pierre-Philippe, went also through similar questions and coming across these very high quality maps in France and thinking of all the projects that could be done by extracting information from these rich sources.
1: Yeah, right. That's the East Side Story paper, which was in the JP last year. Very nice piece of work. I'm just going to ask some big picture questions. So one is like, what do you think are the virtues of historical data for urban economists? What are we learning from history?
5: I think there are important questions with historical data. I mean, you've contributed to some of them. I think the first one is to give us a long-run perspective on some mechanisms that require the long run. If you think about, for instance, the question of persistence of spatial equilibrium versus geographic fundamentals in explaining why cities are sort of always in the same place, I think you would need to get some data in the past to understand whether there were shocks, for instance, to the structure of economic activity and whether it persists over time. And I think you've contributed to some of them. I think also there is another aspect, which is that we have a lot of transforming economies and transforming cities, and it happened that historically some of our developed countries have gone through this long-run transformation of, for instance, mass rural urban migration and cities that are transforming and sprawling and suburbanization, like kicking in and then gentrification in the long run. And I think it's true that historical data in some of our countries may help maybe shed light on this more recent development in other countries and maybe better understand how maybe policies might or might not mitigate some of these very long run effects that we see nowadays.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the common way to think about like, what is the value of history, right? And hopefully we can learn from history to tell us something about the present. And maybe sometimes that's about thinking especially about developing country cities today. In terms of the content of your review article here, what are the challenges at the frontier in terms of collecting and digitizing these historical data sources?
5: Okay, so we looked at it, I think we looked at it in three steps, to be frank with you. The first step was to think about important questions that you can address with historical data. And it got us into looking at recent articles that were using this type of historical data of high quality. And we were quite surprised that we are seeing A lot of such articles, extracting very innovative data sets, sometimes from tablets, you know, to recover like lost cities. We discovered that there were actually a lot of articles already using data that I would describe as high quality data that is a bit buried behind a wall of complexity in order to extract it, either because it's written documents or it's historical maps. And what we discovered also is that everybody had a sort of hand-designed way of getting the data, either by designing like smart research assistants or having some form of limited machine learning approaches. Every authors or groups of researchers had different way of dealing with this data set. And then because of that we started to think whether there were like some common aspects to this data, which was for instance one challenge is that it's very disorganized data, or at least it seems so. In the sense that historical maps, it's a list of features but these features, they, for instance, they conflict with each other. You have like labels that are written on top of buildings. Then you have lines that intersect these buildings. And these features also, they are organized in the sense that in order to get them, we need to be as smart as a human being looking at it in the sense that you need to understand the context of it. In order, for instance, to decide whether something is a chimney or not, maybe you need to understand whether it's located within a workshop or located within something else. This is why we understood that there were these challenges and that people each time had a sort of do-it-yourself approach to it, sometimes designing some machine learning, sometimes research assistance. And this is why we started to dig into more systematic ways of extracting the data in the new tools.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're getting at something that is a big challenge and something that I've encountered in some of my own work digitizing old data is that. Every situation is at least a little bit different, right? No data source is the same. And so it seems inevitable that there's going to be some customization required for every project. What are the kind of common factors that we can extract to kind of accelerate progress in this space? What are the -the off-the-shelf kind of tools that would be useful to kind of see develop that could be widely applicable?
5: Yeah so I think in general, like in some of the applications that we were mentioning before, which were historical maps or written documents in which you're trying to sort of isolate, for instance, articles in newspapers and actually extract the text from something that is a handwritten document, there are approaches that exist that exist nowadays, which uses computer vision and machine learning, or more generally, they are using even deep learning. And uh, these tools more and more routinely used, I think, the industry. And it's true that they've not been used so much by, at least systematically, by us, researchers. And I think they are not used for two reasons, mostly. The first one is that there is a cost in designing such tools. They need some pre-processing, in a sense that the machine doesn't take the same thing as you, human being. It needs to be somewhat pre-processed, but on top of that, it needs to be trained. And even though many of these tools are described as black boxes, and there is some aspect to it, It's still a black box that needs to be fine-tuned. So it means that even if it could be applied more flexibly to various documents of various sorts, it still needs to be fine-tuned to a certain context. And it means that there is a sort of fixed cost to be paid in order to develop those tools. So I think my thinking is that it's really the first reason. It's a huge investment and it's a huge investment for which we still need to fine-tune and that will remain not applicable to many other contexts. And I guess the second reason has to do maybe also of the way economics work in which it's more small teams that are working on an article, but there's not a big movement in general of organizing larger teams, creating something like a public good. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because, for instance, the American census was digitized quite systematically, you know, and it was linked over time, sometimes using these advanced tools. But it was using in a context of more of a public project. The structure of economics is not lending itself so much to designing, to collaborating and designing these big projects in which you would create a public good that could be used by everyone else. Everybody has a bit this hold up question of spending so much time generating something that could then be later used by somebody else. So I don't know if there is any way to deal with this, but I suspect this would be one of the barriers as well.
1: Great. Thanks for joining me. Super interesting article. I think definitely seems like a bit of the future, right? More and more, I expect to see these kinds of techniques applied in papers and top journals. So thanks.
5: Yeah, thanks a lot. And thanks for inviting me.
1: Our next guest is Jason Barr. Jason is professor of economics at Rutgers University of New York. Welcome, Jason. Thanks. It's great to be here. The article is Viewing Urban Spatial History from Tall Buildings. It's co authored with Gabriel Alfelt. Before I ask you about the paper, Jason, I kind of want to know a little bit more about your work in this area. I think you're well known for your work on the economics of skyscrapers. How would you summarize your agenda in this area and what you found over the years?
7: my agenda, broadly speaking, is trying to understand something a little bit more about the underlying economics of skyscrapers. It was not something studied in the economics literature until quite recently. I think for many years, economists just saw skyscrapers as a kind of sub area of like real estate more broadly. And so the tall building as something separate from Real estate markets was not really widely seen. So I kind of got into this as someone who was interested in New York City history. So I saw skyscrapers a little bit differently than just another form of real estate. So my work has been testing various hypotheses. How economically rational are they? Are they too tall? And then most recently, with my work with Gabriel, we're looking at spatial structure and what's the relationship between horizontal land use and vertical land use and things like that. So in my experience, it's a field that's understudied and has tons of questions that are fun to investigate.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think you mentioned your interest in the history of New York City. I think that's something that ties very nicely into the article that you wrote with Gabriel. So diving in a little bit, the central claim of this uh, review article with Gabriel is that Data on durable and tall structures represents an underutilized resource that can be exploited as historical big data to study the spatio-temporal evolution of cities. What did you mean by this?
7: When you think about cities, cities are generally dynamic entities. People come, people go, businesses come, businesses go, prices go up, prices go down. But buildings, by and large, remain, and in a way... The fact that buildings tend to be durable, especially tall buildings, means that we have a kind of almost like economic archaeology that is available to us without actually having to get a shovel and dig below the ground. We can view the history of cities through building atlases, through databases and maps and things like this, especially with big data now and computing power and AI and all kinds of software. There's this untapped resource of exploring how cities have grown, how their land uses have changed, how building heights have have changed over places over time. I mean, it's all there. It's just a question of calling it and exploiting it. Right, it seems like
1: there's two dimensions here to your answer, right? Like one is that like- No pun intended. Yeah, Yeah, right, right.
2: Three dimensions, (laughs) no pun intended. (laughs) Yeah.
1: If we were to take a snapshot of a city today, We see skyscrapers from every era of past building boom. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in Manhattan, you have the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, you have all the way up to all the Billionaire's Row apartment building near Central Park. So that's one dimension, right? Like if you take a snapshot today, you see this cross-section of buildings from different eras, but also you have potentially data sources that tell you about historical building heights and building in history that may not be around today, but which tell you something about sort of the economic geography of the past, right? That's right. So
7: number one, I was just looking at the data set for New York City before this podcast and, you know, something like 50% of New York City's buildings were completed before 1930, 70% of New York City's buildings were completed before 1950 and 80% of New York's buildings were completed before 1965. So even today, literally 80% of New York's building stock is many, many decades old. So right there, just looking at the current building databases, you already have a historical record of New York's building patterns. And you, know, you could argue that buildings have been destroyed, and maybe you have some kind of bias by looking at today's data. But I don't really think that's the case. (laughs) I think we can use today's cities to give us some indication of what happened in the past. And then again, they used to publish fire insurance atlases all the time. So these fire insurance atlases have building heights, building uses, and these are increasingly digitized and available for research. So the record's there. Again, it's just a matter of how we exploit it and what kind of questions we can try to get at with this data. What are some kind
1: of future developments on the horizon are you most looking forward to? Is it sort of mass digitization of some of these historical records or is it something else?
7: Okay, I think mass digitization is a huge untapped area. There's are some efforts by, for example, like the New York City Public Library, where they have people sort of georectify maps. But then once you align the current maps to the historical maps, the New York City street grid, then you basically have to sort of digitize them so you could use them as shape files. And there's some attempts to do that. And then there's also attempts at basically digitizing entire censuses. So once you combine, for example, the building maps the historical atlases with the censuses right there you have a whole new sort of explosion of possibilities with mapping historical building uses building types building heights with population things like that so that's one area that's definitely like basically an untapped resource for for sort of new big data sources and some people have been doing this but certainly there's a lot to be done so that's definitely an area of possibility also there's the current databases that also keep track of, Emporis keeps track of demolished buildings. So to the extent that if somebody is aware of a building that was demolished, they can type in the data. So databases like Emporis are kind of like a wiki element to them where they allow people to upload information that, that they know about and sort of just becomes this rolling database. So I think there's also a lot of avenue for people to add demolished buildings to that database too. So that's another part of the kind of big data universe.
1: Yeah, you know, in terms of like the fire insurance, map, it seems like there would be a lot of public value to having a large, accessible database that many many researchers could have access to. It almost begs for an NSF-style grant and a big team to be able to tackle that.
7: Yeah, and also they were done for most medium-sized and large cities. And so I know you've done work on sort of standardizing census tracts over the various census. So imagine we can combine census tract data with uh, standardized fire insurance atlases, it would just add a much richer dimension to our understanding of kind of the evolution of cities. Something I was thinking about as well is there's a handful of research papers. Now, I don't think it's as large an area to be called a cottage industry, but uh, several papers have taken these, looked at uh, big urban conflagrations that have destroyed big neighborhoods. And then they paired that with the urban atlases or the fire insurance maps. And so then you can kind of see what happens through the evolution of the development through the fire insurance maps over time inside the burned area and outside the burned area. And so that's just like a sort of a small sample of what you can study. Once you get these fire insurance maps, you can kind of overlay them with all kinds of other urban things. And in the fire case, you could look at, land uses and building heights before the fire, after the fire, and, and set up kind of an, your econometric methods to be quite you know rigorous in a way to sort of identify cause and effect and things like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, agreed that there's a lot of potential, and I expect that we'll see a lot more work in this area in the years to come. Thanks for joining us, Jason. It's a real pleasure to meet you and chat with you about your work and the paper that you wrote with Gabriel.
7: Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you
1: for listening to the third and final part of our special series on urban economics and history. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the previous parts of this series available wherever podcasts are distributed. Thanks to the participants featured on this episode, Ed Glazer, Leah Brooks, Ting Chen, David Naji, Janos Zilberberg, and Jason Barr. For Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lin. Extra special thanks to our producer, Skylar Pals. Skylar is graduated and moving on to greener pastures. He has been with us since the very beginning of our show and will greatly miss him. Thank you, Skylar. Our theme music is by Alexander Koltsaw, with additional sounds by Inspector Jay. Check the show notes for links to the articles we discussed on the show. And let us know what you thought on Twitter, at Densely Speaking, at Greg underscore Shill, and at Jeff Arlen. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover it. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which
0: the hosts or guests are affiliated.